You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, I'm back and I'm glad to say that Lizzie Banks is back with us once again, two podcasts in a row. That must mean that your recovery is going swimmingly from your concussion, Lizzie. Yes, I'm back. I'm delighted to be back again. Um, Things are getting better. Uh, Firstly, thank you so much to all of you who got in touch after the last podcast where we were really just kind of... um, going through what I'd been up to or what I hadn't been up to for the last four months. And if you haven't had a listen, go back and listen because, well, I think it's fascinating. Um, and yeah, I was amazed how many of you guys got in touch to say uh, you've had similar things as well because it's it. I didn't realise quite how common it was. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting better all the time. The brain recovers at one speed and one speed only. So it's still going to take a little bit of time. But yeah, I... I'm, I've had periods in the last few days where I've started to feel normal, which is really quite an amazing feeling after, after the last nearly five months now. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't chase feeling normal because I don't think anyone has felt normal in the last, you know, year and a half, to be honest. But um, if you haven't heard that podcast from last week, from last week, last month, um, Lizzie talked about her uh, head injury from Strada Bianchi early in the season. And it is, I mean, it's a remarkable interview. I, I, if you haven't heard it already, I, I do um, encourage you to go listen to it listen to it because I mean Lizzie you were just so honest and I'm I'm not surprised that it you know we got the response that we did really because I've never heard someone speak so an act you know a, a you know a, a current athlete speak so openly and honestly about a head injury I mean maybe Ian Boswell but you know it was it was you know I'm, I'm really pleased that it resonated with people I think there's a couple of problems and, and one of them is you know when you get a head injury you just kind of you disappear offline you're away from anything public because you're trying to you know, you're not trying to avoid screens. You are trying to avoid screens right in the beginning. And then you're you're slowly bringing screens back in because it's part of your rehab and you need to be able to look at a phone and look at a screen to be able to function as a normal human. But um, yeah, when you have a head injury, you, you kind of disappear off the face of the earth. And it's really easy to people to forget about you. Obviously, I'm fortunate to have you know, this voice on here where I can raise issues that I think are really, really important, not only to me, but but for the whole cycling world. And actually, already before this, I was quite, um, yeah, strict with athletes that, that also I worked with in my team. Um, if they had knocks to the head and, and, you know, they'd say, I feel fine, I feel fine. I'd say, yeah, but you just have to rest. It's not worth the risk. You just don't know yet. And since, since having... Um, put out this podcast you know I've spoken to actually so many athletes quite a lot of athletes uh, who'd had head injuries previously and maybe hadn't recovered and also current athletes in the peloton who had crashed and have got in touch with to say hold on a second um you were really dizzy you know you had this incident straight after your crash I really don't think you should be riding I don't think there's the depth of knowledge within many you know <laughs> many teams actually in order to treat it properly in the way you should and it's really just a case of education and things are getting better with the UCI concussion protocols but I I think those need a lot of work (laughs) really I I think that they um I wouldn't say that they're a joke but they they need substantial work in order for it to be properly effective and you know work from concussion specialists um yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. It's a really tricky one. But yeah, I'm I'm getting better, which uh, that's the main thing for me. And uh, very pleased to be back here and uh, yeah, back on the pod. 
Well, I mean, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Olympics. Uh, later in this episode, we're going to talk. Um, we're going to talk about Japan, but not really about the Olympics. We're going to talk about uh, Kieran. I've done an interview with uh, Justin McCurry, who, if you've been following the Olympics on the Guardian uh, recently, then you'll have heard of him because he is the Guardian's uh, Japan correspondent. So he's very busy at the moment, but he's written an excellent book about Kieran and Kieran culture and Kieran tech, which is something I'm fascinated by. Um, but over to Japan, Lizzie. We heard you on um, on the regular cycling podcast uh, earlier this week. I'm sorry, Tom, talking you about just, the women. You just can't can't shake me off, can you? <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about the. I mean, I, I, you know, it was really interesting to hear your take on the women's road race because, I mean, I've, I, you know, I've, you know, we can't move for hot takes on what caused that to happen and whether radio should be brought in. We're not going to talk about that as much here. One of the things I wanted to talk about, and is we've subsequently found out, is that the winners of both the men's and the women's road race at the Olympics were using core temperature sensors. Yeah, so Tom actually spoke about the the core temperature sensor back on the podcast in April when when I was away when he was working with Ian Boswell. And this is something that I've known about for a while and um, have been really interested in because core also partnered with my professional team, so it is at WNT. And it is just a little square sensor that you clip onto your heart rate monitor and it gives you a pretty accurate reading of your core body temperature. So it is as accurate as you can get for something that doesn't go inside you. So the most accurate way of, or the most common way of measuring your temperature is what you'll have had when you go to the doctor. It's a tympanic thermometer. You pop it in the ear, um, measures your temperature there. The most accurate way is probably with a rectal probe. But I can't say that I've met many cyclists who would want to train or race with one of those. <laughs> Another option for incredibly accurate sensing would be um, a temperature pill. So you swallow it and it measures your core body temperature internally. And again, that's something that has to pass through you and it's not really that practical <laughs> for using in races. So um, the core temperature sensor it's like it's a real time sensor that you can use to train yes you wouldn't use it you would use it in a race to to measure and see what's going on but you wouldn't use it in a race to limit yourself because obviously in a race you just have to go with the feelings and go with the flow um but it's a really interesting tool that you can see on your on your bike computer in real time when you're training and you can get up to um your heat training zone and stay there for a bit and then come down and in and out. And so I think a lot of athletes will have been using that because it's really the only kind of easy way of doing it that I know about. Um, and when Richard Carapaz was away solo, I saw that he had it on his strap and I got, got really excited about it because I really wanted to talk about it in the podcast. And then Anna Kiesenhofer, um, you know, we all looked on, our twi- on her Twitter, who is Anna Kiesenhofer? And the most recent post, which actually really interestingly, she's now removed, um, was discussing, it was kind of a personal monologue discussing her use of the core core temperature sensor to measure her um, heat training. And what she was discussing, which is really interesting, actually, is basically if you are in a cold environment, so if you are breathing in cold air, but you get your body up to the heat training zone, which is 38.5 degrees, 39 degrees, does it have an effect? Because she said she would get her body up to that temperature, but she wouldn't feel hot. So is it working? What I know from the literature is that if you are 
trying to get hot in a cold environment where you're breathing cold air, it does not have the same effect. So you do have to be in an environment, a hot environment, breathing in warm air um, in order to, to get that physiological change or physiological adaptation, I should say. Shoot, uh, shoot à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's said PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel, which is an app that is an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language because it combines tech with learning with an element of gameplay because each of the 15-minute lessons do feel almost like a computer game. Um, you become competitive with yourself because you want to get through the lesson making as few mistakes as possible and then move on to the next level and make as few mistakes as possible there. And the way that the app is designed, you're always reinforcing what you already know and stretching the boundaries and, and learning new things because the lessons have been created by language experts real people so the phrases that you're learning are actually things that you can imagine yourself needing to say uh, when you are, are abroad rather than sort of computer generated phrases that you think well th this is no use to me at all so you're learning language that is going to be very useful uh, there are 14 different languages to choose from including spanish french italian and german and if you're doing spanish or french there's also a podcast so you can immerse yourself in the language uh, and then come back to the lessons um, and listen to the podcast when you're doing something else, cooking or exercising or whatever. Uh, I've been, over the past year or so, been doing a bit of Italian uh, where my level is quite low. I'm, I'm trying to sort of just pick up some basics. Uh, but recently I've been doing the French classes because I did a French A-level but never really progressed beyond that, unfortunately. Just sort of hit a bit of a wall. And I've realised over the years that I've just got some bad habits that I need to undo. I need to reinforce the foundations of, of what I know and fill in some of the cracks. And Babbel's been helping me to do that because it very quickly works out what level you're at and tailors the lessons for your level. And if you're you know getting too many wrong, then it just makes it a bit easier and you reinforce enforce some of the things and then you know continue your progress when you're ready to do so so i've been finding it really enjoyable just to uh, pick up the phone do a 15 minute lesson here or there and uh, and and move on you can also do it on a computer uh, if you, you, you can switch between the app and uh, a computer and uh, your progress will be synced up across all your devices. So if that sounds like something you'd like to do, you can start your language learning journey today with Babbel. And Babbel is offering our listeners six months free if you purchase a six-month subscription by using the promo code cycling. So go to uk.babbel.com forward slash play and use the promo code cycling to get an extra six months free on top of a six-month subscription. That's uk.babbel.com forward slash play with the promo code cycling. And we'll put that information in the show notes. Well, let's go to somewhere where we know it's very hot now. Let's go over to Japan. So um, we're going to hear now from Justin McCurry. Like I said, he is the Guardian's Japan correspondent and he is the author of the book War on Wheels, which is all about uh, Kirin racing in Japan and Kirin culture. One of the reasons I really, really wanted to do this is because I have had an NJS frame in my eBay um, cart so many times and I've never pressed the button. And do you know what? I mean, yeah, it's, I've just come so close. They're such beautiful bikes. I just love them. Yeah. What, what make is it? 
Do you know what? I just, you know, it's funny. I, like, and we're going to talk, I'll talk about this later because actually, yeah. you know, reading your chapter on the different makers and stuff really interested me. And um, I just go for the colours, the nicest pretty patterns, really, you know. Um, yeah. But, but they're all, I mean, with them being NGS, you know, you, they're <clears> all essentially the, the, supposedly the same bike, aren't they, really? More or less, with, yeah, with a few sort of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, with a few embellishments depending on who the bike builder is, but generally. Well, you mentioned the color. A lot of people decide their um, decide which bike to ride based on the color. I know a guy who likes um, purple with uh, gold lame on it, and then there are other guys. There are others who just prefer a white or a you know a plain black frame, or they might have. I just, yeah. I, just I just could just hear something in the background there. Some strange tune. I think it's gone now. What's that? Don't worry, You've um, got to explain that to me. <clears throat> at five p.m. every day, uh, there's. Um, this jingle that comes out over loudspeakers throughout the, the ward I, of Tokyo that I live in. And it's sort of a reminder that it's five o'clock, but I don't think it means, I don't think it means anything much more than that. It's certainly not like down tools and go home or anything like that, but uh, perhaps for ki kids to get off the streets and go, go home and, and uh, that's that sort of thing. But five o'clock every single day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> So how long have you been in Japan? Because, I mean, I'm already, I've been speaking to you for a minute and I'm already baffled by something Japanese. How long have you been in, in Japan and are you still constantly baffled by stuff? Yeah, well, I've been here a long time. I came here in the early 90s to teach English, like a lot of people, um, which I did for about four years. And then I went back to the UK for about a year and a half, um, did a master's degree at the School of Oriental and Af African Studies. And then my wife and I spent a bit of time in London, decided we'd quite like to go back to Japan. Uh, so we came back, lived in Osaka, not Tokyo. Uh, so Osaka down in, um, in Western Japan for a while. I got a job with a local English language newspaper just as a copy editor, really. Um, and then 2004, I, I'd already done a few freelance jobs for The Guardian, but I got the, um, I got the full-time correspondence job. So it's, yeah, it's getting on for, well, it's 17, 18 years now at The Guardian. Am I still baffled? Um, well, perhaps less so than I was because I speak the language and read it. And obviously, you know, with every new experience, you kind of learn a lesson and you know what to expect uh, the next time round. But I can say I still find it fascinating. Yeah. That that never that never wears off. I don't think, and uh, I think a lot of people who've been here longer than I have feel the same way. And you've obviously you've clearly got a love for Japanese culture. Um, cycling has that always been a part of your life, or is that something that you came to while you were in Japan? Well, because I've been in Japan since I was in my early twenties, <laughs> I suppose it's a bit of both. I mean, I saw I had you know I think I mentioned my rally commando in the book somewhere. Which you do, I, yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Which which I had, and you know, no offence to chopper owners, I you know I would have enjoyed riding around on a a chopper as well. But um, yeah, I always rode bicycles. As soon as I came to Japan, I remember I got my first pay packet. I, I can't remember what it how much it was. It wasn't much. Uh, but I had the the rent. My, my boss was also my landlord, so he took the rent out. Um, and I remember spending quite a lot of what was left on a mountain bike. Uh, it was a giant. Uh, my co-worker at the time, who was another British bloke, he bought a mountain bike as well. And, um, yeah, we used to spend days off going on long rides. Um, one, one winter we managed to, I think we cycled down a couple of prefectures or counties just after the New Year holidays, which is a huge mistake because we weren't we weren't kitted out for it. We were riding, you know, average mountain bikes. 
sleeping in paddy fields, um, getting very cold and very wet, and eating a lot of hot hot bowls of uh, of noodles. Um, but yeah, I've, I mean, I ride a bike every day. And then I suppose a few years ago, I started getting a bit more serious about it. So I'd, I'd got, uh, I got a cross bike and then I got a road bike and now I've got a K-Rin bike with brakes, I should add, so that it's not illegal or dangerous for, for me to ride it around my neighborhood. So I've, I've got a collection now and, um, yeah, it's become, I suppose as I've got older and I know this happens to a lot of people, but it's become a much, much bigger part of my life. And obviously researching the Kairin book opened up a whole new world of track cycling that I really didn't know that much about before. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've already, I'm hearing the way you pronounce Kirin. You, there's, a, there's a little, there's a, you're, you're doing it properly. So give me a bit of uh, some notes on how to say it properly. Sure. Well, you're, you're not saying it incorrectly either. So, uh, okay. yeah. Uh, so a very quick explanation. If you're talking about the Japanese version that began 73 years ago, you've got two kanji Chinese based characters, K, which kind of mean, can mean uh, battle or competition. And then Rin, R-I-N, in, if you're romanizing it which means wheel. So hence the title of the book, really. There's a bit of uh, art- artistic license there, but what war on wheels, Kairin. K- Since it became a UCI sport and made its debut at the Olympics back in 2000, um, I don't know what happened, but over the years, I suppose when people were trying to pronounce the original, that it just got was adapted over time. Uh, and the, you know, the Anglophone pronunciation now is Kirin which actually sounds like the Japanese for Kirin, which means giraffe. But I think, uh, I think most people would, would you know, forgive you for that. So it's actually quite useful to divide the two. You've got Japanese Kirin and international Kirin, partly because they're quite different sports. Well, actually, that was my first question. I thought we'd, we'd probably better, you know, most of us know the Olympic Kirin, which involves, a, you know, a man on a dernie, f- uh, five riders, I think it is behind him, and then Chris Hoy wins. Um, <laughs> but the ja- the Japanese version is, um, and he actually spent some time in Japan, didn't he? Didn't he riding the Japanese version? The Japanese version is very is similar, but it's also very, very different. So do you want to just talk us through the way the Japanese version works? Yes, as you as you mentioned, with the international version, you've got the the motorized derny for a start, and then I think six in an average race, six riders behind. Um, very strict rules about staying behind the derny's back wheel. Um, you know, no 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 physical contact. Um, Two hundred and fifty meter velodromes with very steep banks, and then look at you look at Japanese Kairin, and uh, it looks very different. For a start, you have nine in an. This is an average race. It can differ from. Uh, from one event to the next, but uh, a, a typical race involves nine riders. This is for men behind a derny, but it's actually another Kairin rider who's earning a bit of pocket money, and he rides a norm- uh, an ordinary bicycle. So he's only really distinguished by his by his jersey and helmet. And uh, you, they ride. They don't ride on two hundred and fifty meter velodromes. They there are what sort of forty three, forty four velodromes in Japan. They range from Three, 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 quite a few four hundreds, and three or four, I think, five hundred meter velodromes, and most of them are are outdoors. Um, so that, but that's not the only difference. Once you once the race starts, you see that they cover much longer distances than they would in a in an Olympic uh, Kirin race, um, and I think it's fair to say that they're giving a bit more license to intimidate their opponents than than you would in the in the UCI event so quite often you'll see 
shoulder barging, um, quite aggressive blocking. Um, there are, are, of course, illegal maneuvers, but quite aggressive blocking, headbutting, a lot of headbutting, um, hence the big helmets, um, and crashing. I mean, nobody wants to see riders come off their bikes, they get badly injured. I mean, a, a handful of people have died over the, over the decades after having particularly horrific crashes. You don't want to see them get injured. People have bet money on those races, don't want to see their rider fall because... You know, um, their, their bet is absolutely hopeless if that happens. Um, but it's not unusual if you watch, say you watch a whole, uh, uh, an entire day's Karen racing, there'll be 11 or 12 races a day. It'd be very unusual if you watched all 12 and there wasn't at least one crash. And you, well, I mean, that's that comes back to what I was saying about you know buying frames on eBay because everyone comes with a slight warning. You know, this this has been crashed. You know, you can see and you try and you try and find the one that's sort of been crashed the least. Um, but there's there's more intricate. I mean, I, I I mean, this might be a sort of Western view, but sort of typically of um, of the way Japanese things seem to run, there's far more uh, nuance and custom to it because there's there's there are three different types of rider, aren't there in in a in a Kirin race is it three i think in terms of the positions you want to explain those okay so you're right there are three types of rider but before i go into those descriptions and the roles they play in a race i think it's probably easier to explain what the line is there's a lot about the line in in the book in fact at one point i did think about capitalizing the line because it was just so essential to um everything i wrote about the the strategy involved in a in a typical karen race but the um karen's an individual sport so when you see them line up at the beginning they all want to win they all want that okay, there's a million dollar prize for the biggest race of the year, but there are big cash prizes for lots of other races as well. And they want to earn a decent living um, and get their points average up and, and all the rest of it and, and rise up through through the ranks of the, um, what, two, two and a half thousand Karen riders on the professional circuit. But they also collaborate, um, you know, in a very controlled way. And the way they decide how to collaborate is based, first of all, on regional loyalty, so I think I explained there are several blocks, uh, depending on which region in Japan the riders come from. Um, so to keep it really simple, say there's East Japan, West Japan, and uh, Central Japan in the middle. You've got three riders from each region. Um, well, those three riders will each form a line. And then within the line, each rider will perform a different role. So... Well, who's going to go? Who's going to go up front for for a start, and uh, you know, take the brunt of the headwind, and perhaps get knocked around a bit by some of the other riders? Well, that will be the youngest, because Karen's very Japanese. Karen's very seniority based. So, if you're a new recruit just out of Karen school, you'll join your local uh, your local velodrome. You'll have your training buddies who might be five, ten, could even be twenty or thirty years older than you, depending on how young you are when you start, you'll be expected to uh, to take the Senko role, to ride at the front, um, to uh, shield them from the headwind. And in, in, you get something in return. It's possible that the guys behind you will block somebody coming from behind um, and, and prevent them from overtaking you. So there's a bit of give and take with it. And then you'll have perhaps the, the, um, the next oldest guy in the middle, uh, and then the the oldest guy at the back. But there's also um, a sort of another series of, of tactics that come into play. And this is towards the end of the race, really, when the pacer has left the track. It's It, it, it looks at times quite chaotic, um, but it's actually not. So you've got the Senko role, 
who can uh, who's at the front right from the start. So these are guys who are generally a little a little bit thinner, but with the stamina to to take the front and keep going right till the very end. A lot of them run out of run out of puff long long before the finish line. But quite often they're just trying to lead out their senior colleague behind them and give him a fighting chance of winning. So even if they don't finish first themselves, they've at least played their role. And then you have the um, makuri, the sprinters, who will who are according to Karen rules have to wait a certain um, amount of time or have to be a certain distance from the finish before they can begin their sprint. And then behind them, you have the oikomi, who are also sprinters. They have to leave it even later. So that's why you get you can quite often see if you kind of if you look at a Karen race on YouTube and just uh, pause and play and pause and play, you can see these different roles kind of um, working out amid the, you know, apparent anarchy of, of the race. But it takes you have uh, to keep watching. <laughs> well, I think that's again to, to me. Uh, it's funny because I've watched quite a, a lot. So I've been fascinated with the sport and the culture and particularly the bikes for a long time. But but watching a race, I never knew that that side of things was happening. You know, I just see a bunch of guys. Or, or trying to win it for the cash prize at the end. Yeah. Um, but Kieran, I mean, it's interesting. The, 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 what you do really well in the book is you sort of you trace the the, the history and more importantly the sort of status uh, of Kieran. I mean, we, Kieran's probably far from its heyday uh, at the moment. Um, but there's a couple of really interesting stories uh, in the book. Um, how it could have taken a different turn, and one of the, one of those is, um, were it not for a very very clear day once upon a time in 1945, Kirin may never have really happened. That's right. This is going back to the end of the Second World War, when of course Japan was was bombed uh, twice with atomic weapons, first Hiroshima and then three days later Nagasaki, and Kokura, which is where the first Kirin race was held in. November 1948. It was on the list of US targets. And yeah, a couple of strokes of luck. Um, I mean, it's, it probably sounds inappropriate to talk about people being lucky when um, when something like that happened elsewhere. But Kokura was one of the um, one of the cities on, on the list of uh, places that the Americans were hoping to bomb. Um, it was saved once by bad weather. Um, over Kokura, and uh, I think a lot of smoke uh, that was coming off industrial sites. Some of that was um, was deliberately manufactured because I think people were aware that they were still a, a, a target, and also clear weather over the um, over the initial target city. So yeah, in a sense, Kokura was spared twice, um, but it was an industrial centre. It was also um, you know critical to the war effort. Um, which is why it was on the list in the first place, and which it was also somewhere where Karin could possibly prosper after the war had ended. Um, so tell me about you. Um, where does your fascination with 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 I'm going to try and say it properly, Karin? Um, <laughs> where does it where does it where does it come from? Then I mean, when were you taken? I mean, because I'm I am. Um, I love watching the racing and looking at you know you you can watch the big Grand Prix events you know, where you know there's crowds of ten thousand but the the more the 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 ones I've watched most are when it's you know just four or five dilap you know in a dilapidated stadium yeah. few people looking the worst for wear slightly older who were just there to fritter away a few quid you know what I mean so when um where does your fascination with it come in when, when and maybe when we when were you taken to your first race right well I um. 
I'd seen Kairin like a lot of people on TV, although it doesn't really get much coverage on terrestrial TV. And this is because of the kind of general Japanese squeamishness about gambling. And like you say, oh, it, that's it, another it, interesting story. I think, I mean, yeah. it's, it relies on your game. We'll talk about that later, but yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's just real strange how they can hold those two positions. Yeah. You know, and, and I'd been once many years ago and kind of, kind of left it alone after that. I don't know. I think sort of work and family life and all the rest of it kind of got in the way. And then when I agreed to do this book, which was a few years ago now, uh, of course, the first thing I did was start going to watch Karen races on a regular basis. And I went to, I think, the 2016 Grand Prix final. I didn't really know what was going on. But what I did find was that, you know, despite... Despite appearances and, you know, your average Karen punter can look quite intimidating, the sort of bloke who doesn't really want to be disturbed, certainly doesn't want to have to start teaching some foreigner how to place bets and how to read the form guide. But I, I found people were really friendly. You know, if I went up to them, I, I mean, I speak Japanese, that helps, obviously. But if I went up to them and said, look, I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm doing um, and I've got a few betting uh, slips in my in my hand, they were more than happy to show me show me the ropes. Um, and I, so I, I, I went to a few races, um, big ones, and I started just traveling around to different velodromes across Japan. You know, I went as far north as, as Fukushima, which is sort of, a, uh, which you'll know of because of the, because of the nuclear disaster there, but there, there is a velodrome um, in, in, a, in part of Fukushima. There's also a big Kairin tradition there. A lot of great riders have come from that part of Japan. And then I went all the way down to Kokura, right in Japan southwest, which is where it all began, albeit in a velodrome that's since been knocked down and replaced with a, a very nice um, in, indoor velodrome. Um, but it was as I was traveling and watching more races, watching races online, speaking to riders, uh, frame builders, punters, sports journalists, uh, coaches, of course, and visiting the Karen School, um, I was just... I think obsessed might be too strong a word for it, but my my wife and children will probably say I, I became obsessed with it. So I, I bought books on how to gamble. Um, you know, I bought Karen manga comics and read through those. I got hold of films that had Karen scenes in them. Um, and I, I just watched hundreds and hundreds of races, either live, old races online, back going right back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, when you know, Koichi Nakano, who's the greatest Karen rider of all time when he, when he was active. And, um, it's like, it's like anything when you, when it finally begins to click and believe me, there is a lot I still don't know about Karen, uh, about gambling, about reading the form, but when everything started to fit into place, when I would watch three riders in a, in a nine man field do something and I think, all oh, right, I know why they've done that. And I know why he's at the front and why he's behind him and why he's at the back. And I could, and, and when that happens, you think, yeah, well, this, I, I really love this. Um, I, I think I know what I'm doing now, finally. I think what I like about it, and it's why I have maybe a trouble with sort of horse racing, as I think with, with horse racing, you take the gambling out of it and I've got literally no interest in it. But I think I think with Kieran, you know, although the, the gambling is important and we can talk about why it's important because, it, you know, it subsidises a lot of what, that region where what the, the local governments can spend money on because they they raise money they raise funds from it but i think without the gambling you can still watch it as a as a fantastically competitive and beautiful sport 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's something. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's really important. I, you know, I bet on uh, lots of races, but probably only a very tiny percentage of all the races I've watched. <clears throat> and I know lots of other people who go uh, go along to uh, velodromes, and they might, you know, if they watch eight races in a day, they might have a bet on one or two of them. Some people don't bet at all. Some people, of course, bet too much on every single race. Um, you know, I'm not pretending that there isn't a gambling addiction problem in in Japan because there is, just like there is in in any country where you can gamble. And and I I, I hope I went some way towards uh, addressing that in the book. But yeah, I mean, it's really in- interesting what you were saying about horse racing because I spoke to lots of people at velodromes and I asked them, well, you know, what, so why, apart from the the prospect of perhaps winning a few quid, what what makes you want to come and watch Kairin rather than go to the uh, the horse racing um because there are four sports in Japan that where where it's legal to bet and they're all run in some form or another by by the Japanese government so there's horse racing obviously keirin obviously there's a form of speedway and there's motorboat racing and the the answer that i got most often was well okay you've got the horses and you've got the speedboats and you've got the uh, the motorcycles and they're all they're sort of machines or they're another animal. But with Kairin, it's just, you know, the bicycle is powered by a human being. And that means that human frailties and human strengths are all on display for all to see in every single Kairin race in a way that you may not see in horse racing or motorboat racing. And that's what keeps them going back. And I think that's prob- that probably partly explains why I'm so, um, you know, enamoured of it as well. Well, I think it, it lends itself to, to great stories, doesn't it? As well, Cause, you know, you go back to sort of the classic cycling stories. You know, the the sort of working class riders of fifties, sixties. You know, self supported maybe a lot of the time, and you know, and you know, living off winnings from one race to the next. And that's sort of gone from Europe from the European peloton now. But that is the story in Kieran, isn't it? You know, you make you win your winnings are what you survive on. That's it. You know, it's not it's not about sponsorship, is it? No, it isn't. I mean, some races are sponsored by newspapers. I mean, obviously, newspapers and cycling have, have, have a, a long, long tradition, not, not just on the track, but on the road as well. But really, when you, when you get your license after a year at the Karen School, you're your own man or woman. Uh, you're your own boss. Um, you train with other people, but you decide which races you enter. Um, you decide which ones you, you give a miss. There, there is a minimum that requirement throughout the year. I think the years it's broken up into two six months six month periods, and you've got to ride a certain number of races in order to keep keep your license. But basically, you're you're your own boss, um, and yes, you you um, the more you win, the better a lifestyle you're going to have, and the higher up uh, the ranks you go, the more money you win. Um, and there's also a a, a big degree of self interest in looking after yourself, although not a lot of care not all Kairin riders look after themselves particularly well. It's quite a few overweight guys, quite a few smokers. Um, you know, drinking is is fairly commonplace. But a lot of a lot of riders will go into professional Kairin in their perhaps in their early twenties, and they're still around in their late fifties and in some cases early sixties. It's incredible. So they look at it as not as um, you know other elite sportsmen who have this sort of two or three year window of being at their absolute peak and winning, winning Olympic medals. And then 
you know, quietly retiring. This this is like a this is like a regular job for a lot of people in Japan. Something they'll start in their early twenties and then see through to to retirement. Um, and it's it's why and how those guys who are in their forties, fifties, and sixties can keep going that really really captured my interest while I was researching the book, and which is why I kind of sought out some of them when I was um, when I was arranging interviews. I mean that is extraordinary, and, and you touched on it there. You talked about the Kirin School, and I and I um I think the, the the frame builders and the schooling are the two areas that I find the, the most fascinating and the most Japanese essentially about the sport. Um, when I was reading about the schools, and I, I'd love you to tell, sort of tell us a bit more about the schools in detail. It, it reminded me of. Um, one thing I've often been fascinated with is going back to transworld sport back in the day is sumo, and you know, you, with sumo, you have these um, you have these schools dotted around Japan. You sort of these stables of of wrestlers who are in, and you know, you you fight for your school and you grow up and you and you you know you're trained in it and you and you live in it. And Kirin is is similar in a way, isn't it? So tell us about the, the way the Kirin schools work. Yeah, so the, the, the initially there wasn't a, a care in school, and there wasn't even a minimum, minimum requirement to become a professional, which is why you had, you know, all sorts of people taking part in professional care in the early days, and you know, including people who were who were willing to throw races, uh, willing to cheat basically, which is why in the early days the sport had such a dreadful reputation uh, among the rest of Japanese society. But when the care in school opened. And the the authorities decided um, that professional riders had to have not just uh, the physical attributes, but also a knowledge of the law as, as it pertains to gambling, and also um, a sense that they're ambassadors for their sport, if I can use that terrible cliche, in wider Japanese society, because it's looked on in in uh, with with some degree of suspicion anyway because of the gambling connection that that's when Karen really um started to started to change quite dramatically so yes if you want to be a professional rider um you've got to spend 11 months at the Japan Karen school now called the Japan Institute of Karen um it was renamed while i was writing the final draft of my book so fantastic timing but what i decided to do was keep the school's name and then mention towards the end uh, that it was beginning to modernize and part of that modernization was giving itself a, a new name but you yes if you're a, a, it takes in a certain number of men and a much smaller number of women every year in fact twice a year but they um, at different intervals and they different times of the year I should say and then they spend their 11 months there they train pretty much every day they have very little time off um, the training is brutal, isn't it? I mean, the, re, just reading the book, the, you know, starting from with the calisthenics first thing in the morning, and you know, going yeah. through to hill climbs. Yeah, the hill climb. Unfortunately, every time I went to the Karen School, uh, it was raining. Apart from graduation day, <clears throat> so there was no training that day. But um, there's an absolutely brutal hill um, that they they learn to cycle up on on their Karen bikes um, multiple times. Um, and that, that really is a, a huge test of, of strength and, the, and a test of their commitment to becoming a professional uh, because it's not easy. I walked up it and I was thinking, I, you know, I just can't imagine cycling up this on a, on a, on a fixed gear bicycle with no, and then going back down to the bottom with no brakes with just my legs spinning like bilio, you know, it, it, it's frightening, but they do it. They get up to the top. They have a, you know, I think I wrote in the book that they, some of them disappear into the bushes to throw up 
and then they do it all over again. There's a lot of repetition, though. I think this this is a, the very Japanese aspect um, of the of the whole training regime is lots of time on the on the rollers, weightlifting, more rollers, more weightlifting, more rollers, more rollers well, the rollers, than anything else. When you say the rollers, yeah. I think the rollers. You know, we have rollers over here, but I think yeah. the rollers are very specific to Kieran, aren't they? I think the ones you were describing in your book. Yeah, they're the very heavy. Um, uh, in Japanese, they're the sambon roda. So the sambon meaning the th- the three san means three, um, and bon is used to hon or bon is used to describe something sort of long or cylindrical. So you've got that those very heavy steel rollers um, that they will spend hours and hours and hours on and and do even after they turn professional. If you go into the riders area at a velodrome you'll always see uh, riders warming up on, on the rollers, of course, as they do in other cycling disciplines. Um, they, they have a fairly strictly controlled diet. Um, the separation between the male and female trainees is almost absolute. I mean, even to the extent that, okay, you might expect the women to sleep in a different part of the dormitory or on a different floor of the dormitory from the men, but they even go up to their rooms via different staircases. So, you know, fraternizing is not encouraged. But the thing that struck me about that was they're treated very much like um, school children at some sort of boot camp. Um, Yet a lot of them are, they're in their 20s, 30s, sometimes even in their 40s. Um, And they're either fairly accomplished road cyclists, a lot of them, or they've had some you know, a high level of um, experience, a high level in another sport, lots of speed skaters, as you'd imagine. Um, you know, they've already got already got pretty big thighs when they start. Um, alpine skiers. Um, oh, there are even some people who've, who've played uh, played volleyball and, and sports that you wouldn't really think were ideal preparation for becoming a, a, a track cyclist. But, you know, they're adults and some of them have had careers in sport or elsewhere before they even apply to go to the Karen school. Yet they walk through the gates of that place. And um, I mean, it's a great leveler. They're all treated uh, irrespective of how old they are, what they've done in their previous lives. They're all treated as Karen rookies who needed to be crafted into athletes who deserve a professional Karen license. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks as ever to Science in Sport for sponsoring the Cycling Podcast. And going back to heat, we've been talking about heat a lot this episode. Worth reminding you that Science in Sport do a range of products specifically designed to help you on days when your temperature is hard to control. There's a lot of products that use menthol um, as a cooling aid. I've used them myself when I've been on the turbo and I can thoroughly recommend them. If you want to get hold of any Science in Sport goodies, then just go to scienceinsport.com and you can get 25% off if you enter the offer code SISCP25. That's SISCP25. Well, I mean, it's interesting you're talking about sort of, you know, someone in their 30s or 40s from another sport coming to, to Kenya. Uh, what would um, attract someone to the sport? Is it just a chance to just earn a regular bit of money? Is that is that what is that the basic attraction of it? I think in some cases, yes. I mean, I, I read uh, the other day um, a Japanese sports newspaper was reporting on the on Shane Perkins retirement from international track cycling. 
And it didn't say anything about his future, but Shane has been a reg regular fixture in Japan for many years. He's really well liked. He's been very successful. You know, he's, he's a great professional K-Rin cyclist as well as uh, UCI cyclist. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in the twilight of his career, he tried to come back and perhaps find a way of becoming uh, a regular professional here. The only, the only obstacle, there is no nationality uh, requirement, but you obviously need to do your 11 months training and tuition and all the rest of it in, in Japanese, which is, which is a problem, which is a problem if, if, uh, if you're not Japanese, basically. Um, but there might be, I mean, one, one thing that I would, suggest and a lot of other people have suggested is that the the barriers to becoming a professional are relaxed a little bit to allow the sport to become more international but yes i think if you if if you're japanese and you join you become a pro at a young age you're probably looking to to go up through the ranks from a2 to a1 from s2 to s1 and eventually to become you know it's unfortunate that they're called ss riders but that's the name of the the top nine male riders are the ss elite and uh, th those are the guys that compete in the grand prix but then again yeah you may have people who don't want to give up professional sport um but who are past their peak in in um in the international circuit and think well you know i could if i get into Karen, i will be riding professionally with people who are of a similar ability with hence the rankings so it might be a way to stay fit to stay in the sport i love and to earn money while i'm doing it so the very the, the first um one of the first women to become a professional after the women's sport was resurrected back in 2012 was uh miyoko takamatsu and she'd been she she was a great road cyclist um on the domestic circuit but she was a school teacher and i think she was 49 when she when she entered the japan Karen school um and yet as she told me in, when i met her for an interview she was treated exactly the same as the 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 women who were 18 who just left uh senior high school it's absolutely fascinating i didn't know that about the so i know foreign riders often take part you know so we said chris hoy um i've forgotten his name there was a british rider uh recently who spent some time yeah, out joe, there, joe truman there? um who's there you go yes yeah he's on the british track cycling team um i got to know him fairly well he was so they get a light they're invited um they they have a license that allows them to compete for several months over the course of two years so a lot of them come sort of may june july then go home and then come back the following May, June, July. So they do three months per, a year. Some of them are really successful. Joe Truman did very well. Um, I don't think Chris Hoy stayed for as long as several months. I think his professional career was was fairly short-lived. But obviously, given what he did after he went back to the UK and started winning Olympic me medals, I, when I met him a couple of summers ago when he was making a BBC documentary about Karin, um we, we went to a velodrome to watch Joe, Joe Truman racing, actually. And, of course, all of the Japanese riders recognized Chris Hoy. And, uh, you know, they, they were getting him to sign their their jerseys, bits of paper, the saddles on their bikes. You know, they, it was absolute um, and total adulation um, because of what he'd achieved on the on the international circuit. Well, I got him to sign my son's bike, so uh, right, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you do, isn't it? It is. Um, interesting, interesting, <clears throat> interesting, this is quite this is quite a Eurocentric sort of um, viewpoint, there. But so, so my next question is really like, um, you know, how does success 
in Japan translate to the international field. I mean, we don't see many sort of Japanese sprinters coming over to ride in the European peloton. We don't see Japan dominate in the Olympic side of the sport. So, you know, is there a, is there a progression and, and how does it work? Well, the, the short answer is no, but, but that's changing. So in the past, when you think about Koichi Nakano, who, um, you know, he won, what was it, his uh, seven, eight world championship, sprint championship titles in a row. He was he was a rarity, uh, not just in the sense that he was such a fantastic cyclist, um, but also that he was a professional Karen cyclist who wanted to compete internationally and prove himself on the international circuit. And but to do that, of course, you you have to take time away from domestic Karen and uh, go through all the qualifying and and travel abroad. And he was willing to do that, but not many cyclists have been um, as keen on making that sacrifice since which is a real shame. Uh, I mean, there have been, you know, occasional medalists in, in international cycling um, involving Japanese riders over the decades, but, you know, nothing to get too excited about. But I think with um, with the arrival of a couple of foreign coaches at the Karen School in the last few years, uh, Benoit Vettu, the former French cyclist, and uh, Jason Niblett, the former Australian cyclist, who are now coaching in the high-performance division at the Karen School and are also the track Japan national track cycling coaches. Things are beginning to change, and the the um, the principal of the Karen School, um, Masamitsu Takizawa, who was one of Koichi Nakano's great rivals, he's also open to open to change. So they're in, they're introducing um, different training methods with a focus on diet. They're entering more international competitions. So they're encouraging professional Karen riders to take that leap, a leap that they haven't really been willing to do up until now and get involved in the international Karen and track cycling competitions as well. So I think, you know, I'm not sure if any of the Japanese riders are good enough to win um, a Karen medal at uh, the Tokyo Olympics if if they go ahead. Um, but... They could possibly get medals in other in in other events, and if one of them, either a man or a woman, um, you know, we're talking about uh, Kobayashi, uh, one of one of the women, um, Ota. I'm not sure if she's qualified, but somebody like um, uh, Wakimoto, look out for him in the men's Karen or you, uh, Nitta, N I T T A. If one of them were to win a medal in the Karen in Tokyo or in Izu, which is not that far from Tokyo in at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, then, you know, maybe that would that would well, it would serve two purposes. It would give the sport a big boost domestically and raise its profile and perhaps break help break that connection with the, you know, the old guys and the Yakuza criminals and and gambling and boozing and all the rest of it. Um, but it might also pr- persuade some of the top uh professionals that it's actually worth losing a little bit of income and spending some time away from domestic racing in order to 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 test yourself against the best track cyclists in the world rather than just other people in Japan all the time. If we do see um, one of the Japanese riders doing very well at the Olympics, they'll be on a very, very different bike to what they normally ride. So that's it. And this is where I, what I really want to talk about. Because obviously we are actually predominantly a tech podcast, but we've been talking about the culture for about half an hour, which I love. Um, but the, so the, the, the big term you sort of need to, to grapple with is NJS. So I guess, can you explain NJS to us? Yeah, it stands for Nihon Chitensha Shinkokai. So Nihon meaning Japan. 
Chitensha Bicycle, Shinkokai, I guess, promo Promotion Association. So the Japan Bicycling Bicycle Promotion uh, Association would be a rough translation. Um, and let's let's stick with NJS. Um, for, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Cause, I mean, I was um, <clears throat> I, uh, I so I've, I ride a fixed gear a lot of the time, and I was living in London for a long time when the sort of fixed gear boom happened over here, and you had shops like Tokyo Fixed, you know, jumping on that culture. And um, the most sort of coveted bikes were the ones that were NJS. You know, if you had an NJS on the streets of London, that was the coolest thing. But they're very specific bikes with very specific standards, aren't they? That's right. If you don't, if every part of your, uh, if you're a professional, that is, if you don't have the NJS imprint mark on every part of your bicycle, then you are effectively riding an illegal bicycle and won't be allowed to compete on in Japanese Kairin. So it's not just the frame, it's, it's everything else uh, uh, as well. And there are uh, specific standards that each uh, bike builder has to adhere to, of course. Um, but like we were saying earlier on, there are, there are embellishments. It, it you know it, it might be um, just a certain part of the bicycle. Uh, it could be a lug or something like that, or uh, you know, I don't know. Um, most of the time, it's it's the uh, the color of the frame and and the design and the um, uh, and the uh, bike builder's logo at the front. Um, so really, really tiny differences. Uh, which is why I think I explain in the book that I, I don't think every, anyone has ever won a Grand Prix final or had a really successful season because he has been on a on a frame that's that's so much better or more advanced than any of the others because that just simply isn't possible legally in in, in Japanese Kairin. So what what the bike builders do because they're not allowed to. Um, kind of experiment with 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 new technology and new design because the rules are very strict and they work within these certain constraints is they they will design and build the best frame they can for an individual rider so that's what that's really what struck me about the bike builders here is that they have this very close relationship with an individual rider so you you might have a rider who prefers a really stiff frame um, who who doesn't want you know even a nanosecond between his brain telling his leg to do something and the bike responding, and then you you might for want of a better word you might have riders who want something a little bit more I don't know malleable or stretchy. I think cyclists will understand what I mean when when I talk about that. But um, it, th that that relationship between built frame builder and and cyclist is is incredibly important, and it goes of course it goes way beyond simple things like, you know, height, weight, reach, and all the rest of it. But it's funny, actually, reading the, the, the chapter in your book where you, you, know, you went to visit some, some builders, I think uh, Yoshiaka Nagasawa, is that, that, is that a good pronunciation? Um, it was really interesting to, to the way you spoke about these, these builders because, a lot, you know, we're used to having bike fits over here when you can go into the most minute detail, but some of these guys are so experienced that they don't really need a huge amount of information from you to, to build the bike, do they? No, I think this is... Um... <sighs> The ball is always very much in the build, bike builder's court. Um, so, you know, even when you're talking about, you know, S2, S1, even SS elite cyclists, they, they'll perhaps sort of say, well, you know, I'd quite like, uh, I'd like this one finished in gold. And can I have a white saddle instead of a black one? 
and can I have my name stitched into the, you know, they might make a few requests, but really they're just putting their faith in, in the, in the bike builders um, who may have been building frames for them for, for, for many years, but it's really down to the, yeah. I mean, there's um, Yoshiaki Nagasawa is a great, great example. He, he I, I spoke to him you know, at, at, at length, I would say about, what he does in in his in his workshop in um, in Osaka, and he kept everything surprisingly simple. That now that's not to say that he he doesn't know about geometry and that he didn't have charts hanging from you know walls and and desks and hanging off the um, sellotape to machinery all over his workshop. Of course, he takes his craft incredibly seriously, and he knows that he has to adhere to certain standards, certain N- NJS standards. Um, but really, it's um, it was more like watching somebody put together a um, I don't know an, an oil painting or um, you know so, some sort of work of art rather than watching an engineer slowly go through the motions. You know, put, putting um, part A into part B and then adding part C. It was <clears throat> it was a lot more. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it wasn't as clinical as that by by any means. It was like, it was like watching a craftsman rather than um, rather than an engineer or a mechanic. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, I've I've, I've never visited Japan, and I'm desperate to go. But you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the culture, and you know, things we pick up over here. You know, the way um, uh, the makers of samurai swords, you know, the way they work and the way their their artistry is revered. Even people who um, assemble um, rice dishes in very intricate ways you know there's there's um there's, there's sort of an, an art to it and there's and there is a japanese word um uh, for the way they uh, for the for the importance of craftsmanship in their industry isn't there but i was just wondering how um how revered these people are and, and whether there's any a, a sort of a degree of a sort of ceremonial um element to the way they build things or just just the way they're respected really yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, monozukuri, mono literally making things, is the is the word um, um, the, the word I think you were looking for. And you know, I have mixed feelings about monozukuri, which I think I outline in the book. In in that, I, I appreciate as much as anyone else the brilliance of Japanese craftsmanship. You know, in the in in the arts and and in bike building, but I I don't think. You know, don't don't Italian and British and French and Spanish and American craftsmen um, take as much pride in what they do as, as as Japanese craftsmen and craftswomen? I think the answer is yes, but um, that's not to say that uh, the bike builders that I met were uh, aren't incredible incredible people um, uh, who do incredible things with steel tubes, basically, um, and they are revered uh, be- partly because of partly because they've been around for a long time. I mean, you know, the guy at Kalavinka, which is another frame builder, um, Nagasawa, uh, the, the uh, Konno-san at Cherubin. Um, well, in, in certainly in the case of Nagasawa, he, he's a former uh, road cyclist himself who had a very promising career. It didn't work out for various reasons and then who went to italy to learn how to build bikes um you know with ugo de rosa so he he did his apprenticeship um he really does know what he's he's doing he did didn't just open his workshop in osaka and think you know what i can't ride a bicycle competitively anymore i think i'll just i'll just make one he he put in all the hard work which i think explains 
<clears throat> some of that reverence you were talking about, and I think the reverence is at a, is at its greatest among the among the cyclists that they build bikes for. There's a, there's a bit in the book where you talk about how a rider gets a bike, and you sort of you, you, you tell it very simply. You know, knocks on the door, walks into the workshop. Ask for a frame, bows, <laughs> and then, then leaves. Uh, but you've, um, you yourself, you've got a Kieran frame. So t- tell me about your your. Well, you got a Kieran bike. Tell me about your bike. Who built it? What was the process like? Yeah. Oh well, this is. You're probably fed up of hearing this, but yet another. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> you underestimate me. <laughs> but but yet another. Yet another part of life that's been disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. So not not it didn't work out quite how I would have liked uh, liked it to. But I yes, uh, at some point I decided that I I wanted a Karen frame, and that it had to be Nagasawa, and that it probably had to be blue. <laughs> so I wasn't being particularly choosy. Um, so the the best way I mean I, I've, I've learned I learned this very quickly. Whenever I have any questions about uh, about frames, about parts, about obtaining parts, uh, about tweaking things, about a problem I might have, I go straight to Seiji Eguchi, who runs the Corsa Corsa Vintage Bicycle Shop in Tokyo, which I think GCN a few years ago, I, it didn't describe it as the best bicycle shop in the world. It said, could this be the best bicycle shop in the world. I think a lot of people. I think it probably is. Yeah, it's not very big, uh, it, but it's it's an amazing place, and it's just run by by Seiji and uh, a couple of other people who help out part time. So I asked him if he could somehow source me uh, a Karen frame that I, I think an average Nagasawa, just the frame itself, probably goes for about three hundred thousand yen. So you know, two over two thousand pounds, which isn't isn't it ridiculous when you think of what some, some road bikes cost. Um, so about 300, 350,000 yen cherubim, probably a bit more than that. Um, because I think they just look, they look flashier. Um, I didn't want to pay that much, but he managed to get his, his hands on a, on a secondhand Nagasawa, which was the right size for me. Dark blue, orange lettering, Nagasawa down the, down the side and all the rest of it. And I, I, he sent me a photo and said, if you want it, I've got to buy it now. It doesn't have a scratch on it. So I just said, buy it now. I'll put the money in your account tomorrow. So I got it for about 350 pounds. And then, yeah. And then um, I didn't have any money left. So I just, I left the frame with Seiji for quite a long time until one day he texted me and he said, look, it's kind of cluttering up my shop. I'm getting a lot of stuff in. I'm getting lots of orders. People are bringing me all manner of vintage bicycles, wanting them restored or, or whatever. What do you want to do? So I said, okay, right, let's, let's, let's build a bike. Um, so we just spent some time together at his, his shop. Um, as somebody who's part of the industry, he gets, uh, he's got access to some sort of uh, database of care in NJS parts, old and, uh, and new the, the handlebars aren't um, on NJS, but most of the rest of it is. I'll, I'll send you a photograph later on. I've got to see it. Yeah, and um, well, you've you've put um, obviously you you ride it with with brakes front and back. Is that? I mean, that's not NJS. Is that frowned upon? Is that okay to do? I don't, well, <laughs> culturally, no, no. I mean, no. Some of the purists would say, uh, "Why, why are you ruining that beautiful frame by having brakes put on them?" Uh, to which my answer is, well, you know, I don't want to be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
that's fair enough. And I, I live in Central. Have you, how, how, how have you put the brakes on? By the way, have you got? Uh, have you drilled it out? Do they drill it out, or do they they, they clamp on? What have you, yeah, what have you cl- used? Clamped. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then single gear, mainly because I live in Central Tokyo, and there are lots of cars. There are lots of narrow roads. There are lots of roads that little side streets that appear out of nowhere. Um, I've got, you know, safety first. I've got to be careful. What I do um, is I don't live that. I live quite near um, a container port overlooking Tokyo Bay, which is really popular with cyclists on a Sunday because the port's closed and there is not a single car uh, on a lot of the roads. So you, you've got these long, long stretches of straight roads. Uh, it's not very, the scenery's not great. You've got, okay, you've got Tokyo Bay, but you've got lots of cranes and containers and, <laughs> sort of industrial buildings and that sort of thing. But that, that, that's, I quite, in fact, I quite like that, but that just gives me the opportunity to kind of, you know, head down and, uh, and, and do some, do some sprinting. Um, but oh, yeah, you're talking about, like, you know, the idea of the idea of riding a fixed gear, you know, NJS bike with the sort of neon backdrop of Tokyo behind me. Oh, <laughs> that, yeah, that is literally, you know, I think it must come from watching Akira, you know, the motorbike scenes at Akira all those years ago. Like that is literally my dream. That, is, that sounds incredible. Well, well, do it, Tom, you know, say, say I will. Well, I will. You know, yeah. What's, the, what's the current what's the current culture like? I mean obviously you know we 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 had that fixed gear boom over here yeah. and it was sort of very much came out of places like New York and Tokyo on either side um what well, is, is there much of a scene scene for it is it is it is it still cool to ride the, the sort of those bikes around Tokyo No not really that that the fixie boom happened at around the same time uh, and then sort of d- then died out um uh, yeah, most most people I know who've got NJS frames are friends in the U- in the US or the UK, who you know found out I was writing a book about book about Kera and said, "Hey, I've got a, you know, I've got a Calavinca or a Presto or, or you know whatever it may be." So here, um, I mean, I do I see people riding uh, NJS frames, but you, you, usually it's the same setup as the one I've got. You know, it's um, it's functional and it's legal, uh, so there isn't that huge interest in. In, uh, in fixed wheel bicycles now, I would say. I, I, I really want to make a program uh, about sort of that fixed gear boom and bust at some point chart in the history, actually. So I'll, I'll get in touch with you when I get when I get around to making that, but I'm desperate, I'm desperate to do it. Um, my final sort of question really is about um, where the sport is now so you know we, we, we you, you talked us through how it, you know how it came about post-war and how the sort of boom 60s 70s 80s i guess um and then it's been in a bit of decline so where where is it now and where is it going i know i know they're trying to modernize a little bit there's there's experimentation with carbon bikes and stuff like that yeah um where's it going that's a, that's a really good question I, I think it's at a crossroads um some people sort of talk about decline but i, I don't think that's necessarily the case because Throughout its history, Kairin's overcome one obstacle after another. You know, first of all, okay, it started three years after Japan was obliterated in the Second World War, and yet somehow, with with a bit of with a lot of goodwill, a lot of effort, and a bit of money, people who really wanted this thing to happen made it happen. So that was the you know that was the first obstacle overcome, and then there was uh, yeah, there was post-war austerity. Then when Kairin really got going, there was a backlash um, among people who didn't like it, the association with gambling. There was violence at velodromes. Organized crime got involved. Uh, the politicians were elected in places like Tokyo who 
they didn't just dislike Kerry and they dislike gambling in all its forms and they managed to get velodromes closed down. And yet um, it survived. And then you had the bursting of the Japanese econ- economic bubble at the end of the 80s and 90s, uh, early 90s. Um, that saw betting receipts drop quite dramatically. Yet again, 20, 30 years later, Kerin still uh, generates billions of dollars a year in, in, in betting receipts. And it still has that role where some of the money pays is goes towards paying the riders, the Japan Kerin Association staff and all the rest of it. And then a much smaller percentage is plowed back into the local economy, builds schools, hospitals, uh, funds, welfare services, um, you know, it's fairly modest, but still, it has that um, it has that side to it. That was the you know one of the the reasons why Kerin came about in the first place. So it's you know it's weathered lots of storms, and it's still it's still going strong. I think what it um, the big the biggest problem it faces now is more structural than than political, um, and that is Japan is a a shrinking and aging population. So. In order to survive and prosper for another seventy years, Japan has to, uh, Karen, I should say, has to broaden its appeal, and it's tried to do that. You know, reintroducing women's Karen in two thousand and twelve. Unfortunately, it's called girls' Karen, which I really don't like, but that's what we're saddled with at the moment. <laughs> you know, part of the problem was the. <clears throat> Yeah, women competed in Kairin right from day one. You know, they they managed to have a women's race back in Kokoro in 1948, not because there were lots of women cyclists around, but because um, they thought it would be good for the sport. So they ended up, I think they kind of went around the post office and the local municipal government offices and and asked young young women like, w- would you like to ride a bicycle a week on Saturday? <laughs> and and enough of them said yes for it to happen. So we're, we're, and then the women's sport became you know really competitive until it wasn't competitive and it was was phased out in the nineteen sixties because it wasn't worth gambling on. And then it was resurrected, but it was you know all of the the marketing around uh, women's Karen I think is is slightly well not slightly it's out of date. You know these these are professional women athletes who are called girls and whose uniform is pink. And uh, I, I just think that um, the Karen authorities need to look at the women's sport a bit more seriously. And I think the other way that it can really do itself a favour in terms of its the way it, it, uh, it operates for the next 10, 20, 50, 70 years is to, to look outside Japan, to become more international. So in, inviting a dozen men and women from the international circuit to compete a few months a year is fine, but it's not enough. And they're not allowed to compete. So you could be, you know, Joe Truman, um, who's on the British track cycling team. He can't compete against the, the nine elite riders in Japan. Um, neither can Shane Perkins, neither could Chris Hoy when he was here. And I think one of the reasons is that the Japanese authorities are worried that the, their best men and women will be shown up. Well, what better way to improve the domestic sport than to have them competing against the world's best best riders? And I, and I think it needs to expand internationally in another sense. For, for you know, let's have Karen leagues um, set up in other countries. South Korea is the only other country in the world with a professional Karen uh, Karen league. Um, you know, it'd be great if that could happen elsewhere. It'd be great if I, I don't want to encourage gambling, but if it was possible to get involved on that side of things, even if you're outside of Japan, I think that would also benefit the sport. 
and it should. And again, going back to um, to what I was saying about uh, Shane Perkins earlier, if it was possible to to um, to allow foreign riders to spend more than a couple of months a year here, you know, for them to go, they they go to the Kering School for I think ten days or two weeks to learn the basics. Um, but they don't. They obviously can't spend eleven months learning every single thing about Kering and gambling laws and all the rest of it. If it was possible to sort of internationalize the the whole process of becoming a Kering professional, um, and you had you regularly had British, Chinese, Korean, uh, you know, and other Euro- and European riders taking part in on the Japanese Kering circuit, then it would be it, the standard would be higher, and it would be so much more interesting. It would generate interest overseas and it would do a lot i think to to secure karen's long-term future but i don't see any sign of anything quite that dramatic <laughs> happening at the moment <laughs> unfortunately you know you look at you look at what teams are doing to innovate and you know you know having riders do gravel events and and you know taking part in alternative cycling events you know imagine if ef education nippo you know had uh, riders come over and and i mean actually it's quite a nice marriage that you know and and do kieran you know and and you know tell the story of it in their social media and stuff like that and suddenly you know everyone's benefiting um but my final question i guess is um Imagine a world, right? This is a this is an this is an experiment. Imagine a world where you can actually travel freely and go to places, right? <laughs> Someone might hear this. Be ridiculous. I, I know. <laughs> Someone might hear this and think, do you know what? This sounds ace. I've got to go and indulge this. I'm going to go to Japan. I'm going to go and see some Kirin. Where do you start? You start by reading my book. Of course, <laughs> of course, of course. The, 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 I'd recommend that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say uh, that you'd, you'd start in Tokyo because that's where, if, if you're in Tokyo, you're within reasonable traveling distance of several great velodromes because uh, they're, they're based. They're usually located in the outskirts of, of big cities rather than you know in the city center. So go to stay in Tokyo, do all the fantastic things you can do in Tokyo anyway. And then make time to go to to Kairin meets. Um, you know, you go to Keiokaku. You can go. Uh, you could go south to Kawasaki and Hiratsuka. You, you can go to Tachikawa, which is one of the oldest and most famous velodromes. You could do all of that, and you could be safe in the knowledge that there is there's a Kairin race on somewhere in Japan, pretty much every day of the year. So there's not a season; it just runs throughout the year. Um, and and there's there's a race somewhere at one or more of the the forty or so velodromes, so start there. Um, the K the Japan Kairin Association website, which is not fantastic but a real mine of information, does actually have a an English language PDF on on you know Kairin basics. So what what the rules are, um, what a betting ticket looks like, how to fill in a betting ticket, how to read the. F- I'm not sure if it goes into much detail on how to read the form, but just go take a few hundred yen, have a beer, have some yakitori. You know, if it, if that's if that's what you want to do, bet a little bit of money, and if you lose, it doesn't matter, and if you win, well, that's a little bonus. You could buy yourself another beer and go go with friends because even though. I mean, velodromes here rightly have a, a, a reputation for not being particularly welcoming places. I don't think they're very. They, I don't think they go f- anywhere near far enough to to welcome um, 
young people and and women. I mean, there are at least women's toilets in velodromes these days. There was a there was a time when that wasn't even the case. But I, I you know I think they they could do a lot to make to make urban or suburban velodromes more welcoming. But what I think people will find is once they've walked through the gate and to get in, you pay either 50 yen, which is a few pence, or you pay nothing. So it's not an expensive day out if you don't if you don't want to bet. Once you go through the, the turnstiles and uh, you, know, you, you, you see the track and you see the guys come out and bow in their colorful jerseys, and the pacer comes round, and the starting gun fires, and they and they get underway. Then, if you're anything like me, you'll be immediately hooked, and you'll be among friends. You know, if you speak the language or not, just the fact that you're there, taking an interest, um, is enough for most people. And I think, um, you know, a Karen holiday. Well, if you've got the money to get to Japan, pandemics permitting then um and if you're into cycling i I really can't think of anything better all right lizzie um staying in japan uh the track events as at time of recording the track events are pretty much just about to start um one of the things i wanted to to mention was that this is the first time really we're going to get to see team gb's new track bike we you know we saw pictures of it like two years ago we've barely seen a thing of it since then yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's such a long time since we last saw it really in action. Um, I mean, there's hardly been any races last year. So this is the the Hope Lotus HBT bike, which we actually featured on the pod back in oh, October or November 2019. And it was a really, really fascinating interview with Tony Pennell, who was kind of the head or is the head of uh, what we used to be known as the secret squirrel club at uh, Team GB. So, you know, inventing and designing all of the new tech for the bikes. And and he came up with this completely radical design. You know, we have these new bike designs and they say, oh, yeah, it's 2% faster in this direction and uh you know you look at it and you're like actually is that the same as the previous bike and they say yeah it's radically different but this is this is really radical you know when you look at it it just doesn't look like what we think of as a normal bike and i was quite struck seeing pictures of team gb training on the track you know they've just got out to the itsu i think that's how you say it itsu velodrome uh, just outside of tokyo and uh they've just been let onto the track to start training and I just forgot how wild this bike was. You know, if you've not seen it, the the front forks and the seat stays are so wide that they sit where your legs sit. And oh, it's just I I, I it's really difficult to describe. You just need to go and have a look at it online um, and see it for yourself. And if you are watching the Olympics, of course you will see it very very shortly. But it is. Uh, well, Tony Pennell is sure that it's the future of, of bike design um, because it's so much faster. So, yeah, we'll we'll wait to find out with bated breath. Well, if you want to see it in, you know, it's, uh, you know, this, this sort of startling looking thing. I mean, I'd, I would say um, Cycling Weekly published an, episode, uh, published an article today on the road version of the bike. So um, we've got when there was a road version coming. Um, it's now been demonstrated. And I think when you've got the, when you add the, the sort of derailleurs onto it, it looks even more startling. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a wild, wild looking machine. Yeah, so that's the Hope HBTT, um, which is the road version, which they say is in production, will be in production next year, available. You know, it's in production now, but it'll be available to buy next year. Um, 
I reckon this is the kind of thing that we're going to be seeing at some club tens, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how long it'll take to get that design into the the pro peloton. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. It's the kind of thing that maybe you would expect to see cracked out by GB team at World Champs. So maybe we'll see it. Um, oh, I wonder if we'd see a prototype at World Champs this year with a rider like Alex Dowsett. Or, you know, it's a flat course this year at World Champs. So it'd be really great for Alex Dowsett. I mean, that would be really exciting to see, wouldn't it? It depends. Um, you know, Olympics kind of trumps everything in terms of contractual obligations to use certain equipment. And you, if you've been looking hard, you may have noticed that um, in the time trial that some riders, I'm not going to mention their names because I don't want to get anybody into trouble, um, but some very high profile medal winning riders <laughs> have been using different equipment to their team equipment. And that is actually allowed um, because the Olympics is, you know, it kind of trumps everything. It's a completely different event. Um, you may have noticed that the branding has been removed from all the bikes because of all of the Olympic rules around branding. You're only allowed the branding of um, the manufacturer of the equipment and you're not allowed, you know, if you were riding for Team Ineos, you wouldn't be allowed to have Team Ineos on your frame. So that's why we see such cool paint jobs because they have to do something. Um, so, yeah, going back to the HBTT, yeah, wouldn't it be cool to see it see it debuted at worlds this year i think that maybe that's a bit far-fetched maybe they've not, not actually yeah got it ready yet but but we'll see well would you want to know the price of it lizzie i'll tell you the price oh. yeah and the price I'm, so i'm gonna give you a guess T- 12 grand well, yeah well, that's it so here's the quote oh. here's the quote we like we like to be competitive so something like 12 to 15 grand not crazy yeah not crazy not crazy at all <laughs> yeah coming to a club 10 near you very soon yeah that investment banker in your cycling club here he comes He's got one, hasn't he? Well, Lizzie, I'm going to uh, let you go there. Uh, continue your fantastic cheerleading for Team GB. You can get the flag out your window again once the uh, wind dies down. I will be. I will be cheering hard, especially in the, you know for the Kieran race. I think it was really exciting, you know, watching that race, Team GB London 2012. You know, we had. As a Brit, we had a double home gold medalist with Chris Hoy and Victoria Pendleton, and I think that just ignited um, this excitement for Kieran, especially in the UK. But such an exciting race out of all of the track races, it's probably one of the most exciting. So, again, we've got Jason Kenny going for that, um, going for gold. So, I will be doing a lot of cheering. Hope you guys will be cheering along, especially for the cycling events. But yeah, it's been brilliant, hasn't it? All right, Lizzie, take it easy, and I shall see you next month. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.